This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Hi. Can I help you? Yeah, can I have a dozen red roses, please? Oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. Here you go. That's me. How much is it? It'll be $18. Here you go. Keep the change. Hi, doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. The Room, the movie from which the opening clip is taken, has become a cult-like film classic. Dubbed by some as the worst film ever made, it was written, directed, produced, and stars Tommy Wiseau, and was the subject of the 2017 film The Disaster Artist. It was also the subject of a documentary titled Roomful of Spoons by Canadian documentary filmmakers who wanted to tell the story of the film and its popularity. That documentary has been the subject of years of litigation, with Wiseau at one point obtaining an injunction to stop its release. The Ontario Superior Court of Justice recently released an important decision in the case, with significant implications for creators involving copyright, fair dealing, moral rights, and a host of other legal issues. Joining me to discuss the ruling is Bob Tarantino, counsel at Denton's Canada LLP. Bob focuses his practice on the interface between the entertainment industries and intellectual property law and has been recognized as one of Canada's leading lawyers in entertainment law. Denton's Canada represented the documentary filmmakers in the case, but Bob was not directly involved and did not appear in court on their behalf. Bob, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to this. Uh, it's great. Before we get going, how, how have you been coping and managing under uh, these tough circumstances? Uh, we've been coping pretty well. I, you know, I've got my dog here with me. Uh, my wife is here. So uh, we're, you know, we're a pretty compact family unit. So we've been, we've been doing all right. How about you guys? That's good. Uh, much the same. I've got uh, all my kids home, which is kind of the silver lining with all of this, I have to say, although they might not always agree. <laughs> it's That's kind great. of the way it goes. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Wiseau Studio versus Harper is just this super interesting and pretty fun Canadian case for a whole host of reasons. It's linked certainly to a movie that's achieved cult-like popularity, was the subject of a major motion picture. The plaintiff is, uh, to say the least, a pretty interesting character. And the decision has some big implications for Canadian copyright law. Uh, so I want to get into some of the key takeaways and some of those issues. But before we do that, can you walk us through a little bit of the background of the case. Sure. So I think the only place you can really start is as you did with the singular character of Tommy Wiseau. He's the producer, director, screenwriter, and lead actor in a film called The Room. And most of what you need to know about The Room can be found in, in literally the first paragraph of the course reasons in the case. It was a box office flop. It had terrible reviews, one of which stated, you know, and I quote, watching this film is like getting stabbed in the head. Nonetheless, the film has become something of a cultural phenomenon. It's this cult occurrence, something akin to maybe the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You have midnight screenings, audiences dress up and interact with the film. Wiseau himself has attended these screenings. There was a feature film starring James Franco, which dramatized it. And some Canadian filmmakers decided to make a documentary about this phenomenon, about the film and its, its cultural reception. And their documentary is called Room Full of Spoons, and that's really the subject of, of this litigation. So Mr. Wiseau took umbrage uh, at the documentary, and he ended up suing them for a litany of claims. 
So he was initially successful in obtaining an injunction, which put a halt to the producer's efforts to obtain distribution for the film, to exploit it. That injunction was eventually lifted on appeal. And then the hearing on the merits took place in January of this year. And then in April, we got the decision from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. Okay, so just before I get to some of the key takeaways, so the effect of that injunction, at least for a period of time, was that this film that the Canadian documentary filmmakers had produced simply didn't have any distribution. They didn't have the ability to, to make it available to the public. That's absolutely right. So as you can imagine, that was devastating for them, you know, financially and, and also emotionally. I mean, they literally could not market the film. They were unable to bring it to uh, the attention of, of potential buyers. And so that really halted any forward momentum that the film might have had. Okay. So we'll come to some of the, the key things the judge had to say about the, as you said, the, the litany of issues that, that were lay, raised in the case. But why don't we go straight to the spoilers? What was the, the key outcome in the rulings from the court? So I think the quickest way to describe the ruling is it, it was a complete vindication for the defendants, for the makers of the documentary. The, the plaintiff's claims, all of them, as, as we'll get into, were dismissed. The claims for copyright infringement, for moral rights infringement, tort claims, all of them failed. And the defendant's counterclaim for damages arising from this improper obtaining of an injunction were upheld and, and they were awarded very significant damages. And along the way, the decision has made broken some real ground for Canadian filmmakers and, and for their counsel, such as, such as myself and, and my colleagues. And so this is really, in the context of Canadian copyright law, this is really a landmark decision for filmmaking. We, we regrettably don't have a, a ton of decisions that pay close attention, to, well, we don't really have any decisions that pay close attention to filmmaking in the context of Canadian copyright law. So, so for us, this is a really gratifying decision and, and I'm looking forward to kind of using this decision moving forward in, in arguments and, and cases and helping filmmakers get their projects made. Okay, that's interesting to know. So why don't, why don't we dive right in there? I know that there, as you mentioned, some big implications, perhaps none more so than for documentary filmmakers, but it applies, as you say, even more broadly. Now, I know that clearance issues are invariably one of the big challenges that documentary filmmakers often face, because they, of course, often will use bits of content, uh, pieces of, of other kinds of materials to tell their, their new story. And what does this case mean for their ability to rely on fair dealing where they want to engage in those kinds of uses? So for me and, and the clients I frequently advise, this is, this is really the heart of the case, right? The decision makes it clear that documentary films fall squarely within the enumerated fair dealing purposes of news reporting, criticism, and review. That's a big deal for us because for many years, while many of us on, on the producer's side have been arguing that documentaries should qualify as fair dealing, this is really the first authoritative announcement that they in fact do qualify as fair dealing. So that's going to make it much easier to advance fair dealing arguments, uh, particularly for documentary films moving forward. So it, and as you alluded to, it, it's not just when claims for infringement have actually been advanced, but even more importantly, it's at the clearance stage when filmmakers are working with their, their counsel and with their errors and emissions insurers to obtain insurance coverage for the film in the first place. So behind the scenes, because fair dealing historically hasn't been the subject of a lot of attention from Canadian courts and, and particularly fair dealing in the context of creative expression such as films, there was this dampening effect 
at the assembly stage, right? Like when filmmakers are, are documentary filmmakers in particular are, are gathering all of this material and, and putting it together, compiling it to make a new film, they often had to make decisions not to include material that they couldn't clear because there was just so much uncertainty and, and a resulting you know, inability to get insurance coverage for uses that should frankly have qualified as fair dealing. So hopefully moving forward at a creative level, there will be a little less friction for documentary filmmakers in accessing previously existing works. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. A lot, as you of course know, there's been an enormous amount of debate around fair dealing for, for many years uh, in Canada. And, and part of the, the debate, certainly from many coming on the user side, academics and others, has been to point out the value of fair dealing for creators, that this was not just uh, a, a provision, uh, a right that played an important role from a user perspective, but that that users are creators and creators are often users. And that would be particularly the case, it seems like, in a documentary filmmaker context where fair dealing could prove invaluable to be able to express themselves in a way that they might previously have really struggled given either the absence of uh, licensing or the costs associated with it or someone simply saying, I don't like what you're about to say about me, so I'm not going to give you the permission you need. Absolutely. And all of that came up in this case, frankly, as, as we'll see, you know, it's been, a, it, I, I know for my clients and, and for me as well, it, it's often been a source of frustration, the sort of dearth of, of Canadian uh, case law on fair dealing in this context, um, particularly for Canadian filmmakers, you know, they kind of looked longingly at the United States where fair use is, is much more developed again in the context of filmmaking and they struggled to reconcile sort of what their, their colleagues south of the border were able to do with the constraints that they operated under. And so this is a really nice opening of the door, I think, for them. And as you say, I mean, I, I don't think you can, you can safely, you know, separate out fair dealing from the creative process, uh, particularly in this context. It's, it's virtually impossible to make a documentary film without relying on and incorporating previously existing works. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, part of fair dealing in, in many instances is, is attribution. I need to attribute the source of the work. Uh, what lesson does the court provide in terms of trying to meet the attribution requirement that, that exists in the law? I think the lesson is that the attribution requirement is frankly fairly easy to satisfy. So uh, as you know, for certain of the fair dealing purposes, uh, news reporting, criticism and review, you have to provide attribution as a threshold requirement in order to, to qualify as fair dealing. And what the court indicated in this case is that the, the historical industry practice of providing on-screen credit for the source of the material, whether that's in the form of, you know, text at the bottom of the screen as a clip is playing or text in the end credit roll, that's sufficient to meet the attribution requirement. So, you know, frankly, I think a lot of us always suspected that was the case. We, we certainly advocated for that to be the case. So it's, it's nice to know, it's comforting to know that, you know, we don't need to speculate about that anymore, that that attribution requirement can be met in that way. Yeah, no, that will be valuable. Uh, another mechanism that I think some have looked to as a potential way to obtain clearance, or at least to feel comfortable with the use of materials, are where they are so short as to be what some might view as insubstantial. And as you know, of course, copyright covers uh, copying or substantial portion thereof of a work. Uh, and so an insubstantial portion then wouldn't be covered. Um, how safe are people? 
people if they rely on insubstantial copying, at least in terms of what the court had to say about it. So safe might be, uh, that's a tough word to engage with here. I mean, I think just taking a step back, I think this is a really critical point that you've raised. And it's one that often gets overlooked by, by both filmmakers and, and their, their counsel. Everybody's very quick to jump to fair dealing as a defense. And, and I'm always trying to take pains to, to remind everyone like, no, look, the, the threshold is whether we've taken a substantial part, right? If we've taken less than a substantial part, then it's just simply not copyright infringement in the first place. And we don't need to engage with the fair dealing analysis at all. Now, that can be a, a tough argument to advance, right? Because it's you know both a qualitative and quantitative analysis, it becomes very, very fact-specific, excuse me. It's difficult to draw a bright line, difficult if not impossible to draw bright lines. And so it can be tough to provide guidance there. We, we tried to advance that argument here in this case. We were ultimately unsuccessful. Um, the court's view is that the seven minutes of footage that were taken from the room and the room is about 99 minutes long. So we're looking at sort of around seven odd percent of the movie that that taking could not be characterized as trivial. So, so we, the, the filmmakers here did take a substantial part. That being said, what I think is interesting to note is that the court expressly stated that they reached that conclusion. And I quote again, with some reluctance. So, so that to me indicates that we were sort of in and around the area where this could, you know, a, a slightly shorter taking could have fallen on the, the non-substantial part side of the analysis. And again, it's just good to get this kind of guidance moving forward, right? So it, 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 in particularly for, for documentary filmmakers, that helps us provide that advice to our clients to sit there and say, look, we now know that there's some threshold out there. It's seven minutes out of seven percent. We've gone overboard, and and particularly here, I think the the court's decision made sense here, right? Like, I mean, they they took sort of the iconic scenes from the movie, so, so there's no real argument that that qualitatively this was not um, substantial. But it, it's helpful to have that that guidance on that threshold, so we know there's somewhere along the road here where we, if we take a, some amount we're just not engaging with a substantial part. So, so again, it's just helpful to form it, to assist in formulating arguments moving forward. Yeah, that's interesting. So you note that 7% of the, roughly 7% of the underlying film, The Room, was appears in the documentary version. So in this case, the court's looking at it from an aggregate perspective, the total amount of the time of the clips, as it were, as opposed to looking as to whether or not the individual clips themselves might be an insubstantial taking. Is that, is that right? So the court mentions both, right? They, they look at both. They look at it in the aggregate, certainly. Uh, they also look at the number of clips, which I believe was 69, and the longest of the clips was 21 seconds. And you're right. I mean, they, they look, and that's, it's, bound up in this qualitative and quantitative analysis that the court engages in. So they, they look both at the importance of the individual clips and at the aggregate number. You know, there's, there's some wiggle room there. I think obviously if, if they had taken, 
non-iconic scenes or if, if the 7% had been footage that was not sort of the most famous element of the original work, we might well have fallen under that substantial part threshold. But there's obviously very little reason to do that, right? I mean, why would you, you, you wouldn't take the uninteresting scenes from the original movie, you'd, you'd want to take the, the interesting ones. Uh, it's also worth noting here, I think, you know, in, in engaging in this analysis, the court referred to uh, an English case, which involved uh, a clockwork orange. Um, and in that case, the producers had taken a, a much larger amount, not a much larger amount, they, they took more of a clockwork orange and used it in a much shorter move or much shorter documentary about a clockwork orange. And in that case as well, the court held that that was fair dealing. So, it, you know, it, it's good to get the a sense of where those parameters are here. Um, and I think also it, it, in, in engaging with this, they, the court looked at the extent to which the film, the documentary filmmakers, you know, engaged with each individual clip. So it wasn't that they took, you know, uh, seven minutes and just ran it straight through. Each clip was critiqued or reviewed or was relied on in constructing a broader narrative about how the original film had been produced, what the, you know, the filmmaking techniques that had been used and how it had been ultimately, the court looked at how that ultimately had been pieced together to create this new expression, which really built on and, and critiqued that, that original expression. Okay. Now, I know there's at least a couple of other copyright issues that were raised as part of this case. So one issue that, that I spent pr probably too much time over the years focusing on was uh, digital locks or technological protection measures. And that was somewhat oddly, I suppose, raised in this case. How did it come up and, and what did the court have to say? So it was, it was given short shrift by the plaintiff and given similarly short shrift by the court, really. I mean, essentially, the plaintiff just sort of baldly asserted that there had been a circumvention of TPMs. Um, and really, the only evidence for that assertion was the fact that the film had been copied. So th their argument was essentially the only way the, the access to the film could have been obtained was through a, a Blu-ray. Blu-rays are protected by TPMs. A copy has been made. Ergo, there must have been a circumvention, and and the court essentially said, you know, no. Look, like there ha there has to be some kind of factual basis for a for a, a circumvention of a TPM claim. There needs to be some actual evidence that the the defendant circumvented the TPMs, and, and since there were a variety of different ways in which they could have copied the clips without circumventing a TPM, um, you know, the, the plaintiffs just simply hadn't made out that that cause of action, so it failed. Okay. It's interesting. I mean, it would have been even more interesting, of course, if the court had had to grapple with questions about the inter inter interaction, in a sense, between fair dealing and, and TPMs, which has been a, a, a source of concern, really, I think, since Canada introduced that part of the legislation back in 2012. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I think we're all still trying to contend with how fair dealing interfaces with TPM protections and you know, a, a topic that I think we'll turn to shortly and, that, and that's moral rights infringement. Um, you know, th there are some, I think, you know, let's call them drafting infelicities in the, uh, in the Copyright Act and, and uh, you know, this is one of the places where it, it really lands um, and we'll have to figure out, ultimately, I think we're gonna have to wait for, a decision that the court really does, as you know, sort of uh, grapple with those, those questions more squarely. 
Yeah. Now you mentioned moral rights, which which I think some people listening to this discussion might have thought of, or it certainly comes to mind. What about someone making use of someone else's work, and what does that mean from a moral rights perspective? Uh, how did the court uh, deal with that particular issue? So my view, this was the moral rights claim was really part of a, a broader sort of collateral attack by the plaintiff. And, and I would include the, the TPM claim in that as well. So if they couldn't succeed on the, on the copyright infringement claim, they were trying to identify another cause of action to advance and, and to win on. And, and here again, the court dismissed this, the moral rights claim pretty quickly. Essentially, my takeaway from it is you can't try to use a moral rights claim as a device to squelch criticism of your work, right? The, to make out a moral rights claim, there, there's certain elements that have to be present. So, you, you know, the, there has to be a distortion or a modification of the work, um, or there has to be an association of the work um, with a, a product cause or institution. And there has to be a, an attendant in both cases, an attendant uh, prejudice to the, to the honor or reputation of, of the author. And, here the court just held like none of that was present right there wasn't any distortion or modification of the work you know frank the the clips were not altered in any way the clips were presented um they were faithful representations of the of the passages as they appear in the original movie there there was no insinuation that that mr wiseau was himself endorsing the, this project or was otherwise associated with the project you know beyond the mere fact that because he's the subject of it, he was necessarily present in it. And so those moral rights claims all failed. And I, I think that's very helpful, again, because it's good to have that guidance with respect to how it is that moral rights really interfaces with these these efforts by, by rights owners and, and authors in particular to, to stymie criticism of their work. And so this is some, some helpful, uh, helpful indication that, that the courts are, are not going to love those sorts of arguments. Okay. No, that, that will prove useful. You mentioned that there was an attempt to kind of throw as many different kinds. It seemed like legal claims at this case as possible. And I know it went beyond just copyright. Uh, are there any of, of note that people want to, might want to pay attention to? I think the ones that deserve attention are the tort claims relating to appropriation of personality and to intrusion upon seclusion. So as with all of the other claims, uh, the plaintiff was unsuccessful, but they failed in a way which is sort of helpful for filmmakers. Um, so, you know, we, we know that now that where there's a good faith effort to engage with somebody's work, even if it's a critical effort, right? Even if you're saying, look, the, the, the work that this person created is not particularly good. Um, you can't sort of try to attempt to recover or assert a sort of quasi defamation claim through an appropriation of personality claim or, or through an intrusion upon seclusion claim. Um, the appropriation of personality analysis, I, I think is spot on. The court relies on um, the Glenn Gould precedents and, you know, gives us some more confirmation that simply, you know, people who, particularly people who are public figures, um, don't have a, a valid claim to say that simply talking about them somehow engages with a cognizable right of theirs. And the intrusion upon seclusion claim, you know, that was an, another one that really didn't have a, a fantastic factual basis here. Essentially, 
the the plaintiff had asserted that because the um, the film revealed certain information about him, which he personally didn't love people knowing, that that was not really the the kind of um, you know invasion of privacy that that would really give rise to to an intrusion upon seclusion claim. I mean, in, in this case, the facts that the documentary filmmakers repeated in their film were all publicly available anyway. So so they weren't. Uh, it, it's not like they sort of you know went through somebody's diaries or found medical records that they were uh, sorting through and then, and then publishing those. This was, this was all publicly available information. So, you know, it's helpful again, look, people that are the subjects of documentaries, particularly documentaries that aren't, aren't overly flattering will often try to, to make use of as many different types of claims as possible to, to, uh, you know, suppress the, the, what they view as, as um, an unflattering portrait of them. Um, it was just nice to see in this case that the, the court didn't, you know, wasn't particularly receptive to those those efforts right so the the documentary filmmakers win really on on what was a crucial issue they did not infringe copyright uh, and have the ability to distribute the film but that's not all that happened Uh, i know the court uh, addressed the issue of damages that they sustained as part of this process as well What, what did the court award as part of that well, so the the counterclaim was based on the improper obtaining of the injunction. So, and, and as we had spoken about earlier, that really you know put a halt to efforts to exploit the documentary, which was of course financially devastating for for the the producers and in, in connection with this project. So, the court awarded five hundred and fifty thousand dollars to compensate them for the lost opportunities um, at marketing and, and promotion. And then an additional $200,000 in punitive damages in light of what the court viewed as the, the plaintiff's egregious conduct throughout the litigation and in sort of, you know, outside the, the litigation context, just with respect to statements that were made about the, about the defendants. So, you know, again, vindication for the, for the defendants, not only with respect to the claims that were advanced against them, but also uh, vindication for them in connection with the, you know, their efforts to, to obtain some relief for the, the damages that they suffered as a result of, of the plaintiff's claims. Yeah, no, as you as you said off the top, uh, a real complete victory in many respects, not only on the on the legal side, but also to be made whole in terms of some of the damages they sustained. Uh, why don't we close with, with this question? I I start off each of my podcasts with uh, a clip, uh, usually found on YouTube or f- through the media to try to highlight where things are going. Uh, what does this case mean if I wanted to use a clip from the room to start off this episode? Uh, would you think I'm on pretty safe ground in doing so? I think you're on pretty safe ground, particularly if you're under that seven percent uh, threshold. There, yeah, no, I look. I, I think it's a it's a real vindication on, on that front too. Uh, I think you and, and a lot of others can take some comfort from the findings in this case. And look, at the end of the day, if there is ever a complaint uh, in in connection with your use of that clip, you you just give me a call and, and we'll be happy to run up that hill with you. All right, that's that's good to hear. I might have to take you up on that offer. Uh, <laughs> Bob, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Great. Thanks so much, Michael. Real pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. 
You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.